Good evening. We're going to be in Psalm 19 this evening. Get out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 19. As humans, we typically base our decisions on what the outcome will be. That's typically how I decide what I'm going to do or whether I'm going to do something, whether it's going to give me a good outcome, right? Uh, if, it, if it's going to give me the most amount of joy, then I'm going to pursue that. That's going to be something that I, I desire in my life. I'm going to pursue all those things that are going to bring me joy and happiness. Uh, and, and I'm also, if I don't know which one's going to bring me joy and happiness, maybe I'm just going to choose the one that seems like it would. Or maybe I'm going to choose the one that's going to be the easiest for me. Uh, that, that is the path of least resistance, least confrontation, uh, and, and least effort. That, that's another way that I often choose to make my decisions. But, you know, I hope we see the flaw in that. that even though that's, that's what we have and that's how we base a lot of our decisions, that sometimes our expectations are off. Sometimes we don't have enough information to really know for sure whether that thing is going to provide us with the joy that we think that it will. Uh, and sometimes our emotions are wrong. Sometimes we, we know this thing is going to provide us with joy, but we don't understand that it's temporary, that the joy runs out after a certain amount of time. Uh, we, we, we often feel like something is a good idea, that that's, that's what we need to do, but we're often wrong uh, because we just, we're, we're finite. We don't know enough uh, to make those decisions and to make them correctly. These are not really good metrics for us to base morality on, to base a value system on. That uh, we would choose what is morally good and morally right based on what we think will get us the best outcome or what we think will be the most joyful to us or what we think will be uh, the easiest for us. That's, that's not the way morality works. Uh, but typically this is what we do. We base our morality decisions, whether something is right or wrong, on these very things. Like, uh, if, if we were to ask the question, is lying right if I get the best outcome? Well, you know, a lot of people will say yes to that. But is it right? Is it really right? Is it really good to lie if you're going to get the best outcome? I think we might know well enough to say no because, you know, it doesn't really work that way. We know it doesn't work that way because if somebody is lying uh, uh, against me and they're taking advantage of me to get the best outcome for them, then I know that uh, lying is wrong because they have offended me, right? We know that, that that's not the way morality works. Uh, if we were in a court of law, uh, we can't just tell the, the, the judge, officer or judge, your honor, I feel like it was, I felt like it was right at the time. He's not going to say, okay, well then you got a free pass because you felt like it was right at the time, right? Morality is not based on this. It's not based on what we think is, is right, what we feel is right, and what we want to be right, and what's easiest for us. That's not the way morality works. So, what metrics should we use to determine right from wrong, good from evil? Uh, you know, that idea of determining based on how we feel is very common today. But the idea that God provides us in the Bible is that He is the ultimate source for morality. He is the ultimate source for understanding uh, values and what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad. 
And so whenever we go to the Bible, what we see is God even talking about this system that He set up in Psalm 19 and helping us to understand the value of His value system as we study this together. So let's start off reading the first six verses of this psalm. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Notice how the psalmist starts out by describing to us the glory of God. And the way that he's going to approach this idea of God's value system is the best value system is to start out by telling us God is qualified to give us a value system. He's going to start out by describing what God has done and how he has, his resume declares that He is the one who is actually able to come up with a value system that is true and right and good because none of us are qualified in comparison to God. And so he says, the heavens declare that God is glorious. That's what the heavens declare to us as we look up into the sky. I, I, I love science. and Science is, is a good thing. Uh, a lot of people uh, base too much on science and they, they consider science to be uh, the end of, of everything. But really, science is a really good tool for us. It's a way of observing nature around us. a way of observing the creation that's supposed to point us to, to God, to, to glorifying God, to thinking about how wonderful the, the, the one is who created what we're observing. And so that's what science is ultimately supposed to do. As we look into the heavens and as we look on the earth, we're supposed to be hearing His creation speaking to us and telling us about how glorious He is, how wonderful He is. Notice how the psalmist says this, Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, no words whose voice is not heard. The voice goes throughout all the earth, the words to the end of the world. There is not a soul on earth that is not given the opportunity to see the glory of God in His creation. We're able to see it every day. All around us, all the time. And this is the way God has created things. Uh, one of the very fascinating things about science is astronomy. And I'm not an expert in any of that, but it's amazing to see how mankind has made a lot of progress in astronomy. And, and the Hubble Space Telescope has been able to take a, a bunch of pictures of, of God's creation, the heavens that are above, that the psalmist says declare the glory of God. So I want to show you a few images 
tonight of the the heavens above, that as we stare up into the sky, the Hubble Space Telescope is able to go even further than our sight and see even more. And this is what science has allowed for us to do, to see even more of God's creation than what we can see with our naked eye. And as we look up and we're amazed, we see even more and we're even more amazed. As we look into the sky, we see there are stars throughout the universe. There are galaxies throughout the universe that are, are as, as numerous as the sand on the seashore that God has also created in addition to our, our star, the sun, and our galaxy. That our God was, was able to, to manufacture a universe that is so huge and, and full of, of beauty and wonder should blow us away. One of the things that I found as I was uh, studying this and, and I was interested in the Hubble Space Telescope is uh, an article written in 1974 uh, by National Geographic and it's updated in 2004 with the, the latest Hubble t- Space Telescope information. But this is the article and it's, it's going to be a little lengthy. It's not too long. This is what he said. Today we know that galaxies are as common as blades of grass in a meadow. The Hubble Space Telescope recently completed a particularly deep, faint census of a tiny pencil beam extending far out into the universe. The survey called Hubble Deep Field was targeted on a region of the sky that was nearly devoid of known objects so that so as to be, hopefully, representative of conditions in the distant universe. So they took a picture of the darkest part of the sky that we see, hoping that you know they would see what's beyond what anything could possibly see. And this is the image that they received, as, as you see here on the screen. He said, the resulting images are truly amazing. Strewn across this tiny piece of the sky are perhaps 15,000 or more galaxies of all shapes, sizes, and colors. Because this survey pertains to such a small piece of the sky, the implications are staggering. If the region of sky demarked by the bowl of the Big Dipper were surveyed to the same depth, it would contain about 32 million galaxies. And the estimate of the entire visible universe is that there are upwards of 40 billion galaxies, each containing tens of hundreds of billions of stars. Now that that number, 40 billion, is now estimated to be 200 billion to 2 trillion galaxies. Okay, The number just keeps growing because we can't see the end of the universe. Now there's another part of this article that's really fascinating because it gives us a, an, an idea of how big this is, right? We're looking at this and we're just like, wow, that's really cool to see so far out, but we don't really we're not really able to get the spatial recognition about how big this is. So here's what it says. But how does one comprehend the size of this galaxy-filled universe and grasp the concept that the most distant objects we can see are perhaps 10 billion or more light years away? Imagine that the distance from the earth to the sun, which is 93 million miles, or about 8 light minutes, is compressed to the thickness of a typical sheet of paper. On this scale, the nearest star, which is 4.3 light years away, 
is at a distance of 71 feet. So the paper stacked 71 feet high. The diameter of the Milky Way, which is 100,000 light years, would require a 310 mile high stack of paper. While the distance to the Andromeda galaxy, which is the furthest galaxy that we can see with the naked eye, it's 2 million light years away, would require a stack of paper more than 6 million miles high. We, we, don't even, we don't even know where the end of this thing is. But you multiply the 93 million miles that it is to the sun by 6,000 miles. And you get a picture of the furthest that we can see. It's huge. It's, it's, it's insane. It's astronomical, right? That word that we use, right? It's, it's insane. It's, it's beyond comprehension. This is the size of the universe that we can see. But there's no end to the universe that God's created. All of these things that that we see throughout creation are, are just intended to show us the glory of our Creator, that God was able to put all of this in place that we can see it and look at it and, and understand how glorious He is, how magnificent He is. And we think we're so smart and that we're so glorious because we have the ability to see it. I love how we do that, right? We're so proud because of our ability to see things that we can't even see. But we don't stop to think about the One who has created all of this. This is a spiral galaxy that we just saw earlier this month. And here is the the most famous picture of the Hubble Space Telescope. This is like the greatest picture uh, that was the the highest ranked. Uh, It's called fireworks. It's beautiful, right? heavens declare the glory of God and and we see His glory as we're just observing it. It's His glory. It's not our glory. We didn't put it there. And our theories that everything blew up and then all of a sudden all this stuff appeared is completely baseless. I mean, it's just a, a wild guess. It's faith in man's wisdom and man's knowledge and man's intelligence. And we see how small we are. We see how ridiculous that is. Everything in creation bears the mark of a creator. Everything from the tiniest, most insignificant atom bears the mark of a creator and the way it functions and the way it operates and works together to provide life. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth. And he gives us an example in verses, uh, the end of verse 4 through verse 6 of the sun. And you just think about the sun for a minute and how the sun is able to give us warmth. The earth is in this perfect location. They call it the Goldilocks zone. If we were a little closer, it would be too hot. If we were a little further away, it would be too cold. We would freeze to death. But we're in the space where it's just right. Everything's good for life on this earth. Our orbit is in that perfect zone to sustain our lives. So the sun being where it is and being the size it is, is providing for us the warmth we need to sustain life. Without the sun, we would be nothing. Uh, And so God has created and provided a system with with an ecosystem that provides us with life. And and we, we ought to be standing amazed at what He has done instead of being proud and boastful of what we can do. Well, He continues with this after He gives us His qualifications. This is God's qualifications 
for for telling us a set of values. Then in verse 7, he transitions to tell us what those value systems are, what what they're like, describing them to us. Verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Notice how he transitions to say that the law of the Lord is perfect and talking about that Word and how it provides for mankind. What's interesting if you're reading this in the Hebrew is that the writer decides to transition from Elohim, which is this this bigger kind of generic phrase for God, to saying Yahweh in verse 7. So it's like in the first six verses, he goes from talking about the sovereign God who created the universe to verse 7 talking about the more personal God, Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that God gave Himself to the people Israel, to Moses. He said, I am has sent you. And that's Yahweh, Jehovah, is, is, is the picture. So notice in your Bibles you'll see Lord capitalized. That's an indication that Yahweh is, is being used rather than Elohim. So the picture now is getting more intimate and saying not only has God blessed us on this big grand scale, but now God God has blessed us on a more intimate scale. God has blessed us with His Word. And it says His his law, His testimony, His precepts, and His commandments are all adequate and they're all reliable for enhancing our lives. As we take these things in, they revive our soul. They give our soul new life after we've been on this earth not looking at the law and and trying to figure things out. The Word of God gives us life again, gives us purpose, gives us meaning, gives us experience that is beyond what this world can offer. They're able to make us wise. They're not only able to give us information, but they're able to help us determine the situations in which we need to use these, these laws, these rules that He gives to us. And they give us cause to rejoice. The rejoicing of the heart. As we learn these laws, we find out that they help us to have a good life. They're not just here uh, to, to make us hard and make our life hard, but they're actually here to make our lives better. And they're able to enlighten our eyes and open our minds up to a greater truth than what we can come up with on our own. Then verse 9 really gets to the point of... The, the question we kind of had at the beginning. What is the metric that we need to use for our values? Notice at the end of verse 9, he says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This is something we need to dwell on for a little bit. In the law, we have rules, Right? And do we enjoy rules? Do we like rules? Well, no, not really. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're not a big fan of rules, right? Rules are just something that, that hold us back. They're, they're something that restricts us. But the way he talks about these rules is that these are rules that we need. 
These are good rules for us. These are rules that are true. And these are rules that are righteous altogether. That's the way he describes God's rules. Well, our society says, we don't need your rules, right? We don't need your rules, God. We're done with your rules. We're going to come up with our own set of rules. And that's what we're going to use instead of your rules. Well, what's the problem here? Uh, Well, bad rules hold us back. But the Bible claims to have good rules that are absolutely true and righteous. And they're thinking that these are the bad rules. These are the rules that just hold us back. And they're not seeing these are the rules that will help us. Now, there's been plenty of times when religious people have come up with rules in addition to the rules that God gives us in here. And they are bad rules. And they do cause a lot of problems and a lot of suffering in this life. But the rules that God has actually given to us are good rules. They're absolutely true and they're absolutely righteous. So we need to determine what those rules are. And we need to be following after those because He created the universe. He created everything. He's qualified to give us something that is true and righteous and good. A lot of times when people say, we don't want the Bible's rules, they're really saying, we don't want the rules that Bible-believing people come up with because they're bad for us. But sometimes they're saying, we don't want the rules of the Bible because we don't think that it's okay to to restrict our lives to this extent. But what does the Bible say? The Bible tells us these kinds of things. Be generous. Be honest. Be humble. Be loving. Be wise. Be gentle. Be courageous. Now, which of these do we really want to rebel against? It depends, right? If, if I don't really want to be generous, then I'm going to pick that one. If I don't really want to be loving at this point because somebody's done something against me, then I'm going to pick that one and say, that's not a good rule. I don't need to be loving. But if we, if we really think about this, we want somebody who is that way in their interactions with us. We want someone who's generous toward us, who's honest toward us, who's humble, who's loving, who's wise, gentle, and courageous. We want somebody who acts that way toward us. Inside, we know that these are all good things. And the same goes with the other restrictions, the restrictions he gives us. He tells us don't do a number of things. He tells us don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't kill, don't oppress the poor and helpless. And at first we might say, well, what if I want to do those things? And you're restricting me, right? Well, we don't want these things done to us. So God's words are always true and they're always righteous and we know it because whenever these things are done against us or something is is not done toward us that should be done, we have a problem with it. Our society likes to jump on board with this idea of relativism. I talked about it a little bit this morning and say what's good for you is fine for you and I'm going to do what's good for me. But they don't realize that these values that God has given to us are an anchor that we can use. They are true. They are righteous. And the way that he talks about it, he says, they are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of honeycomb. They're, they're valuable for us. They're more valuable than the most gold. They're sweet to us. They're sweeter than honey. These are the rules that we need in our lives that God has provided with uh, to us. 
But we have a serious problem with these rules. And our society, and even ourselves, as we live out our lives, we struggle with these rules. And we fail to see what the psalmist is telling us here. Verse 11 says, Moreover by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The rules and the laws that God gives to us are warning to us against pain, against suffering that's going to enter into our lives as we indulge in these sinful behaviors, as we as we rebel against God. These things make our lives difficult. The, the proverb writer said that those who lie set an ambush for their own lives. And that's the picture throughout all of these sins is that as we're engaging in them, we're falling into traps that are only going to hurt us. God's trying to look out for us. He's trying to help us to live the best life we can possibly live. If everybody lived in accordance with Scriptures, there would be no suffering. There would be no pain. There would be no trials. Because we would be loving and helping one another all along the way instead of hurting and abusing one another. Well, why do we look at these laws with disgust then? Why aren't, why aren't we plastering these laws all over the place? If they're really a good thing, if they're, if they're intended to help us, to draw us nearer to God and to help us to be more like Him as well, then why do we look at these things with disgust? We should be teaching them to our children. They should be singing these songs in their sleep. They should be plastered all over the billboards. Everybody everywhere should want to know them because they're valuable and they're sweet. Why would we look at them the way that we often look at them? Because we don't measure up to what it says. That's why. That's why we don't, we don't want these laws in our minds and in our hearts. (laughs) Because they condemn us. And they accuse us of wrong. And they, they remind us of how far short we have fallen. That word righteousness, whenever it says uh, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, that word righteous is the word that's used for straight edge. It's the same word as straight edge. Like if you've ever been working on a construction project or something like that, righteousness is just like that precision machine tool that you buy to make sure that every cut that you make is straight, that you can draw the line so that every piece of furniture is cut straight and that it all fits together nicely. So the law of the Lord, as He's telling it to us, is is the straight edge. It It is the line in which we can base everything off of in our lives. As we as we come up with difficult decisions in our lives, we can go to the law, and that's the straight edge. That's where we go to find out how God would handle this, how it should be done correctly in order for us to be blessed, in order for us to have a good life. But whenever we go up to that law and we look at it, what we're going to find is... We're all crooked. We're all crooked. We're all messed up. None of us measure up. None of us are straight. None of us are the way that we ought to be. (laughs) Isn't this discouraging to us? I mean, every time I look here and I'm seeing something else that I'm doing wrong, unless I'm oblivious and I'm just not looking. (laughs) It's always telling me, I'm doing something wrong. My life is not the way it should be. Well, 
we get discouraged. What are we going to do now? What are we supposed to do? We know that God is this glorious God. We know that He is pure and righteous and that all His laws are great and wonderful. We know that we don't, mess, we don't make the right decisions. We mess up. We can respond in one of two ways. Number one, we can just kill our moral sensitivity. We can just say, nope, not going to believe it. I don't believe the law. I don't believe anything that God says or anything that He wants me to do is right. I'm going to do this over here. And we just cut off our conscience. We just let it be seared so that it doesn't affect us anymore. And we just do whatever we want to do. And and we live our life how we want to live. Or, we pursue perfection under the law until it kills us. I mean, everything in our life has to be perfect. And we go to that law and we see something and we're trying to fix it. We're trying to fix it. And we're trying to fix everybody else. And we're trying to fix and we're trying to fix. And neither of these responses are the way Christians are supposed to be. Neither. The psalmist has the correct response. You go back to verse 9. You see something very interesting as you look at this. He sees his law as valuable and he sees how sweet it is and and as it reveals God. But notice the synonym for law throughout all this. Law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. Then he says in verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. The psalmist transitions to, to say... Because of all how wonderful this law is, I'm seeing how I'm not measuring up and I'm noticing that those who fear the Lord are able to remain clean and endure forever. And then verse 12 picks up on this idea and continues it. He says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What we see this psalmist do in response to this great God who has given us this perfect law that we can never measure up to is submitting to the fact that He'll never measure up to it, and relinquishing that to God and asking for God to make up the difference, to make up where He is falling short, to cleanse Him from where He has erred. And then, verse 14, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, a turning around of His life that He's pursuing perfection, but with the recognition that He'll never measure up but that He desires it because of how great God is and because He reveres God, because He fears God, who who knows His weaknesses, who knows His shortcomings, and who knows His heart, and whether His heart is truly desiring to glorify God or to live for Himself after the sins of the world. You see, the psalmist isn't just saying, you know, uh, declare me innocent from my hidden faults so that I can go off sinning some more. (laughs) He's saying, declare me innocent and help me to get better. Help me to get closer to the image of righteousness and perfection 
that you are. Well, it's interesting we see this response in this psalm of the psalmist as he's, as he's considering all of this and taking all of this in and, and determining how he's going to live his life. But what's even more interesting is as we get to the New Testament, we see something amazing about the law. We see that God has sent one who actually fits the measure of righteousness perfectly. We see one who is actually the straight edge for all of us walking and talking and living on this earth. God provides us with a straight edge to base everything off of. A physical representation of Himself. An image of His glory walking and talking and living on the earth. And this man, Jesus, gives us the answer to the psalmist's question. The psalmist asks God, Declare me innocent from hidden thoughts. And in Jesus, God says, Yes, I will do that. I will declare you innocent of your hidden thoughts. We serve a God that understands the fact that we're unable to do what the law says. He gave us the law that we might know Him and that we might glorify His name along with all creation and that we might understand His righteousness and how it exceeds our own. Verse 4 of Galatians 4, I had up on the screen. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Brethren, we don't serve a God who says, you must do my law in order to come to heaven to be with me. That's not the God we serve. We serve a God who loves us enough that He gives us the means by which we can live a blessed life, and by which we can be forgiven of all these errors and all these problems that we have, and that we can learn to love and trust in Him with all of our heart. Nothing else can be my straight edge in my life. My value system is not based on how I feel, or my comforts, or my ambitions. Those are all horrible straight edges that do not line up with the one true straight edge. I can't even base it on what's love. You know, People have all kinds of definitions for love. But God has given us in His Word something more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey if we'll just listen and follow after it with all our heart. Submitting to Him when we fail, He's willing to forgive. We must make that change in our heart and in our mind to serve and worship Him. Is there anybody here tonight who needs to make that change, who needs to change your course of life, to follow after God, to be obedient? If you know what you need to do and you're willing to submit to God and His His righteousness, we want to encourage you and help you in any way we can. Please come as we stand and sing.